Carmen, thank you very much indeed. Good. Well, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help as, as we look at this great passage. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, and providing all that we need for life and godliness. And we thank you that you <coughs> know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. So will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, that each one of us might be conscious that we're listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling us now to follow him into the future. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Now last Sunday morning uh, we looked at Joshua chapter 3, which uh, is the first half of a unit that describes the uh, Israel crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land. And we saw that um, as Israel approached the Jordan, they faced an impossible barrier. But God did amazing things for them. By an astonishing miracle, God brought them through the Jordan on dry land. And as we studied chapter 3, we saw that an important part of that miracle was Israel's preparation. They had to be the people, a people, that God could do miracles for. And you see, Israel showed their readiness to receive what God wanted to do for them by taking some time to get their relationship with God real and right. And specifically, we saw that that meant submitting to God's sovereignty. It meant consecrating themselves for God's exclusive use. And it meant detailed obedience to God's word. Now I need to clarify for us this morning that it wasn't that those particular actions secured the miracle. You know, God didn't say, well, because you've been obedient, I'm going to be uh, gracious to you. I mean, after all, if that was the case, uh, there would be no hope or encouragement for any of us, because which of us is always perfectly obedient to God? Which of us is always good enough for God's grace? But these things, you see, were essential preparation for what God was going to do. Because, you see, it is faith expressing itself in obedience that activates the promises of God in our lives. It's not a reward for good behaviour. Rather, um, our obedience opens the door for God to be God for us. 
So you see, if you're not experiencing the grace of God in your life this morning, if you're feeling that there's some kind of barrier or blockage so that God isn't actually what he claims to be in his word for you personally, well, the place to start is by asking, well, is it possible that I've erected a barrier of some kind to God's grace in my life? And if so, where is that barrier? See, God doesn't change. Um, His promises to us are all yes and amen in Christ. They're always open and they're always available to be claimed. But if we don't consecrate ourselves to God, if we don't obey him, if we don't submit to him, well, we're not actually going to live in the enjoyment of his promises. Of course, I I should say that God willingly grants the gift of faith to those who ask him, but we do have to understand that our faith and our obedience are necessary for everything that God has promised to do and to be in our lives. Now, that was where we were last week in chapter 3. This morning, we're moving into chapter 4. So, if chapter 3 describes what happened before the miracle and the miracle itself, chapter 4 is describing what happened immediately afterwards. And this morning, what I want to do is to draw your attention to three wonderful things that God does in this chapter so that we can see some marvellous encouragements for us in the text. Uh, If you want to follow that, the the points here are in the outline, in the bulletin you were given as you came in. So first of all, please will you notice with me the memorial God commands. The memorial God commands commands, verses 1 to 10, verses 20 to 24. Now that's a very big chunk of the chapter, but it's the main point, and so it's good for us to deal with it right at the beginning. Now what is this all about? Well, it's all about the sign created by these rocks. Uh, If you're a Hebrew expert, then you'll know that the word in the original is actually stones, But as each stone had to be carried on the shoulder of one Israelite, they were obviously more than tiny pebbles, weren't they? They were more rocks than stones. And God instructed Joshua that 12 men, one from each tribe, were to pick them up and take them from the riverbed and carry them over to Gilgal, where they would camp for that first night in the Promised Land. And at the end of verse 7 you'll notice that Joshua explains the significance to Israel. He says these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Now, um, because of differences in one or two of the older manuscripts, some scholars think that Joshua might have erected a second memorial in the middle of the Jordan on the dry ground, that is possible, there are different opinions about it. Um, So there may have been two, we don't know. But what's the purpose? Why did God command Joshua to do this? 
Well, for one thing, in verses 6 and 7 and verse 21, Joshua says that this memorial is for instruction. It is particularly for the children. And that must be important because Joshua says it twice. So in the middle of verse 6, Joshua says, In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And then you get the same thing again in verse 21 and following. Joshua said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. And so the the parents would go on and they'd tell the whole marvellous story to their children. Now that's the first purpose of the memorial. It's a means of passing on the story of God's mighty works to the children. And then secondly, you'll notice at the end of verse 24 that the event itself and the memorial have a purpose for you grown-ups. You see, God knows that now that Israel are in the promised land, other pressures are soon going to creep in that will threaten to eclipse the Jordan experience, to, as it were, push it into the background of their minds. And so at the end of verse 24, Joshua says that the purpose of the memorial is so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So the memorial has a purpose for the children, for their instruction. It also has a purpose for grown-ups, so that we might, well, persevere in faith, I think is is the thrust of that. And then thirdly, you'll notice that it also has a purpose for the outsider, for the, for the peoples of the earth. A couple of weeks ago we saw back in chapter 2 that Rahab said that the other nations had already heard about some of the amazing things God had done for Israel, bringing them across the Red Sea, taking out kings on the east side of the Jordan. And at the beginning of verse 24, we're told that another purpose of the memorial is so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so the memorial is supposed to be a witness for the outsider. If you like, it has an evangelistic purpose. Now, the great question, of course, is, what is all this saying to you and me this morning? If the Lord is so insistent that his people must remember this extraordinary event, what is that telling us? Well, surely, friends, it is a warning that the main danger facing the people of God is forgetting. That your faith grows cold. That it no longer grips you in the way that it did at first. That's why God commands this memorial. God is saying that it's absolutely vital that the truth of what God has done keeps its grip upon you. 
Now, I think uh, perhaps an illustration at this point might be helpful for us. Uh, Back in February 1940, uh, the the Nazis in Germany announced that it was a very serious offence for any German to listen to a foreign radio broadcast. Uh, Of course, in wartime in Germany, it was very difficult for any citizen to know what was actually going on. But if you broke that particular law, there was a very serious punishment. And one German writer tells the story, the true story, of a mother uh, of a German airman. And one morning she received a telegram from the Luftwaffe telling her that her son was missing, presumed dead. But then a couple of days later, the BBC in London broadcast a list of German prisoners that had recently been captured. And this woman's son was one of them. He was alive after all. And the very next morning, um, because this woman hadn't heard the broadcast herself, the very next morning she received eight letters from friends and from neighbours telling her that they had heard the broadcast and telling her the wonderful news that her son was a prisoner in England, he was alive. Great news. But then the story takes an ugly turn because the mother reported all eight of those people to the German authorities and all of them were arrested for listening to an English radio broadcast. Now you see, the point is that what that mother did is not what the Bible means by remembering. That's actually what the Bible means by forgetting. But think about this with me. Did that mother actually forget what they had done or forget the news that they had given to her? No, of course she didn't. But you see, what they had done for her wasn't remembered with gratitude. It didn't keep its grip on her. But that's what remembering, in the Bible sense, is all about. You see, you don't simply remember what happened mentally. You remember it in the sense that it keeps its grip both on your actions and on your attitude. Friends, this is a huge danger facing every man and woman of faith. It always has been, and I want to show you this from Scripture, so won't you please keep a finger in Joshua 4 and turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8 on page 136. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, page 136. And it's in the left-hand column of the Church Bibles. Now, while you're turning there, let me tell you uh, that in this passage, Israel is standing on the border of the Promised Land. And speaking through Moses, the Lord warns Israel of the greatest danger they're going to face when they do cross into the land. We'll pick up the story at verse 11, chapter 8. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, 
failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and everything that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt into the land of slavery. What did God do? Verse 15. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble you and to test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. See, the point is that God knows perfectly well that left to ourselves, we will very quickly forget what he's done for us. He knows that we need memorials to remind us Can I say it like this? Memorials are spiritual lifesavers. And so in Joshua 4, God commands them to erect this memorial. And friends, isn't it the same about all of God's mighty works for us throughout history? All all the wonderful things that he's done for us in his goodness. I came across a a hymn in my preparation this week which captures this rather beautifully. It's on the back of the yellow question sheet if you'd like to follow it through. The, uh, The writer says this, King of my life, I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be, lest I forget thy thorn crowned brow Lead me to Calvary, lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thy agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. In other words, Lord, make me remember. And you see, friends, that's why on the third Sunday of every month, the Lord's table is here. You see, the sacrament is a reminder, it's a a memorial given to us by the Lord Jesus. And you remember, don't you, that the Bible says that when Jesus instituted this, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus said that, you see, because he knows perfectly well that without the memorial, we're going to forget. We're going to forget what he's done for us, opening the way for the New Testament church 
to enter into the land of promise by the blood of the cross. Of course, we probably won't forget that mentally. I'm sure we'll all keep it in our heads mentally. But without this memorial, like that mother in Nazi Germany, we will fail to remember the grace of God in such a way that it keeps its grip upon our attitude and upon our actions. Now, how does that work? How does that work? Well, if the stones in Joshua chapter 4 were a kind of visual aid for Israel, uh, reminding them of the power of God, drying up the river, bringing them into the land, the Lord's Supper is an even more spectacular and powerful reminder. Because as we eat the bread and as we drink the grape juice, we're not just celebrating something that happened out there in history. No, you see, as we take the elements and we eat and we drink, they become a part of us, don't they? Literally. And so when we do that, what we're actually saying is, this has become a part of me. I'm trusting the Lord Jesus for myself. Lord, make me go on remembering who you are and what you've done for me. Well, if you're not back in Joshua 4, please come back there now, because we need to move on from the memorial God commands and see, secondly, the evidence God gives, verses 15 to 18. Now, here you see in those verses the normal pattern of God working with his people. Because first of all, God gives orders to Joshua. Then Joshua gives those same orders either to the priests or to the people. And then the people do what God has said. Now that's what we've got in this section. In verse 16, God says to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. And Joshua does that. Now, the priests have been standing in the Jordan for quite a long time because if you glance back to chapter 3 and verse 17, we're told there, the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And then in chapter 4, verse 10, the priests are still standing in the middle of the Jordan, presumably because it would have taken quite a long time for two and a half million people to get across the Jordan River. But eventually, the time comes when God tells Joshua that the priests can come up out of the Jordan, and they do. Now, friends, what happens here is really wonderful. You see, in the centuries since this marvellous miracle occurred, there have been at least three occasions when the Jordan has been cut off somewhere upstream. Uh, it happened in the year 1267 when the water was cut off for about 10, 10 hours. It happened again in 1906 and then it happened again in 1927 
when the water was cut off for about 21 hours. And when they investigated the cause, the experts discovered that the Jordan River is a part of a huge fault in the Earth's crust that extends all the way from Israel down into North Africa. And it gets affected by occasional earth tremors and earthquakes. And so, some scholars have said, well, the Lord may have used an earthquake to cut off the water upstream near the town of Adam, which, as we saw last Sunday morning, is about 17 miles upstream from Jericho. So, did God use an earthquake to kind of cave in the banks of the river so that Israel could get across. He might have done, but the text doesn't say. Why not? Because actually the text doesn't care about secondary causes. The text is simply trying to get it into our heads that the Lord did this. Did he use secondary causes? Maybe, maybe not, doesn't actually matter. And I mention this, you see, because some people have said that if it was a secondary cause, like an earthquake, that cut off the Jordan River, well, God didn't actually do it. But of course, if you think about that for just a moment, that is a really foolish argument. Because it's rather like saying that, you know, if a mechanic uses a tool to repair your car, well, the mechanic didn't actually repair your car. That's foolish, isn't it? The point is, whether it was caused by an earthquake or not, it doesn't matter. The Lord did it. Someone will say, well, okay, Simon, how do you know that? Well, if you remember back in chapter 3, verse 15 and verse 16, as soon as their feet touched the water's edge, the water was cut off, wasn't it, upstream? Now here, chapter 4, verse 18, very wonderfully, it is as soon as their feet leave the Jordan and return to dry ground that the waters come washing back and they're at flood stage as they were before. Now, how do you explain the timing of that? Surely, the timing is God's way of letting us know that this was his doing and it ought to be marvellous in our eyes. Haven't you often found that it's the timing of God's work that is so amazing. I mean, it could be something as small and apparently insignificant as the fact that this morning we just happen to be looking at a key text on remembering on the Sunday in the month when we happen to be remembering the death of Jesus on the cross in the Lord's Supper. It could be something as small as that. Or it might be something like the Lord finding us this building the very week when we were thrown out of the previous building and we had nowhere to go. The point is that, you see, it's often the timing of the Lord's intervention in our lives that confirms his presence and confirms his work. 
Back in the 1950s, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. And uh, there was a Welshman in the congregation who professed Christ, but later made shipwreck of his life and of his family. He was deserted and alone, and uh, even the woman who had taken the place of his wife deserted him. And finally, he became so desperately depressed that one Sunday morning he, he solemnly decided to take his own life. And so he went along to Westminster Bridge over the Thames and he was about to throw himself in. But then suddenly, at that precise moment, Big Ben chimed the hour and it reminded him that it was the hour of the service in Westminster Chapel. And maybe because Lloyd-Jones was also a Welshman, I don't know, this man decided he would go along and listen to Lloyd-Jones one last time before ending his life. Well, it was precisely a six-minute walk from Westminster Bridge to Westminster Chapel and he arrived at the very moment when Lloyd-Jones was leading the congregation in prayer. The chapel downstairs was full and so he had to climb the stairs uh, to find a seat up in the balcony. And at the very moment when he walked out onto the balcony, he heard Lloyd-Jones praying like this, Lord, have mercy on the backslider. And it was the strangest timing because Lloyd-Jones hardly ever prayed that prayer. But that morning... At the precise time when this man walked onto the balcony in this desperate state, the first words he heard were, Lord, have mercy on the backslider. And it was in that service that this man was restored to Jesus and went on to live a consistent Christian life for the rest of his days. You see, there's something, isn't there, about... God's timing in that man's life and also in Joshua chapter 4. One writer puts it like this. He says, this is the way that God leaves his fingerprints over our circumstances. It's the evidence that God gives of his presence and work waiting for us to notice and give thanks. Thirdly, won't you notice in the text the date God marks? The date God marks. Verse 19. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and they camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. So it was on the tenth day of the first month. Now that date would have been significant for the first readers of Joshua. They would make all the connections straight away. It might ring some bells with you as well. Because back in Exodus chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, before the Passover... The Lord gave orders to Israel that they should select lambs for the Passover on the tenth day of the first 
month. And they were to keep the lamb in the house until the 14th day when they were to slaughter the lamb, sprinkle the blood on the doorposts and so on. Isn't it interesting that the writer here records that the crossing of the Jericho, uh, crossing to Jericho happened on the same date, tenth day of the first month. You know, it's as if the writer is saying to us, can you see what God's been doing? Remember what happened to Israel on the same date all those years ago when they were slaves in Egypt before the Passover. And now you've got another extraordinary event on the tenth day of the first month, but this time they're not slaves in Egypt. They are heirs in the land. They've crossed the Jordan. God has begun to give them the gift that he promised. The gift of redemption from bondage has already taken place. That part of the work is complete. In fact, interesting, the name Gilgal, um, the name of the camp where they were on the first night in the Promised Land, that also, I think, is significant because it tells us that Israel recognised the hand of God in what was happening. Because the word Gilgal comes from a root that means to roll away. And a number of scholars say that the camp was called Gilgal because it was here for the first time that Israel felt that the shame of all their years of slavery in Egypt, the shame of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God had finally rolled the shame away. So, do you see the point? What God began, he completed. These two events happening on the same date but 40 years apart are highlighting for us the faithfulness of God to his work. Now can I ask you, do you ever wonder about that? Do you ever wonder if God might leave you halfway? That, that he's started with you, but maybe he won't take you all the way through to the end. I wonder if that thought ever nags away in the back of your mind. The New Testament understands that concern. Uh, so the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And then right at the end of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You know what's so interesting about that is Paul wrote that 
knowing he was about to be executed. He was duly beheaded shortly afterwards by the Emperor Nero. But even though he knew that, he could still say, God will bring me into his heavenly kingdom. He's going to complete what he started. Now, isn't it the truth that sometimes we need that reassurance? And here, in this text, God is giving that to us this morning by saying, look at the calendar. The date when I began the work of redemption and the date when I completed that first chapter by bringing them into the land are the same date. And the reason is because I want you to know that I finish what I start. This year we're, we're thinking about the, the Reformation. We, we might have a series on it in term four. And there's an incident in the life of John Calvin that kind of illustrates this point uh, rather well. Um, In April 1538, uh, John Calvin was kicked out of Geneva. Uh, He'd been caught up in a controversy about the Lord's Supper. Uh, Basically, he'd refused to serve the, the Lord's Supper to certain people in the town, and eventually the town council got fed up and they kicked him out. And uh, he went from Geneva to Strasbourg, uh, where apparently it seems he had some of the happiest years of his life. But then in 1541, he got a message that Geneva wanted him to come back. Uh, He didn't want to go. At the time, he said he'd rather die a thousand deaths than go back to Geneva. But eventually, he was persuaded that it was the will of God for him, So he packed his bags and went. And when he arrived, quite naturally, everybody was wondering, well, what he would say when he preached his first sermon in Geneva after a three-year absence? What would he say about his exile? What would he say about the people who'd booted him out? Well, Calvin's practice over many, many years had been to preach... Uh, sequentially and consistently through whole books of the Bible. And when he got up to preach on that Sunday morning, he picked up at the very next verse in the very same passage that he'd been preaching from three years before. And it was as if Calvin was saying to the people in church this morning, that morning, After this rather brief interruption, I am going to finish what I started. Now, that is what the living God is saying to us this morning with the assurance in this text. He says, you must understand that whatever bumps and hurdles and difficulties you might have to face I'm going to continue with you until I finish what I started. Amen? Amen. So, friends, if you faithfully remember God's works, it will keep you from despair. But if you remember him 
and his character, you will realise that he has never forgotten you and he never will. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, keep us from being a forgetful people when we have such a memorable God. Look upon us this morning and especially on anyone here who has real doubts and struggles about whether you will complete what you've started in their lives. We ask that you would pour fresh assurance into their souls. Cause us to see what a faithful God you are. Make us alive to see your fingerprints in the timing and the little incidentals in our lives that you are overseeing. And then cause us to bow and to give thanks and to trust you to keep us through all our future trials all the way to glory. We ask it in Jesus' name.